Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, and Rob Smith, our capital markets correspondent. Our guest this week is John Cronin from Good Buddy Stockbrokers. This week, we'll be taking a look at Metrobank as its shares fall to an all-time low, a look at Hong Kong and the new fintech challenges to established players like HSBC and Standard Chartered, and Greens Hill. What exactly is going on with the private finance shadow bank amid an acquisition of a stake by SoftBank? First, though, to Metro. And Nick, you've been following the ins and outs of this UK challenger bank, which has been under the cosh a little over the weekend, something close to a run on deposit boxes. Tell us what's been going on exactly. Yeah, so there was a lot of noise over the weekend. Some of it was very dramatic sounding, but actually long term, potentially not a really big deal. And then some of the stuff that was going on in the background is a bit more in the weeds, but actually should have a bigger impact long term. The drama came about with people may have seen sort of photos going around on social media, long queues at some branches in West London and fears among customers that the bank was reportedly close to collapse. And so they were coming in and emptying their accounts and safety deposit boxes. It was basically a case of fake news in the sense of we don't know whether it was started by well-intentioned but misinformed people or someone actually trying to stir up trouble. But the gist of it from what we can work out is it started with people sending WhatsApp messages that spread quickly through various communities in West London and it created a bit of a localised issue. The bank responded as quick as it could to try and allay any fears and say that there's nothing wrong and even if there was something wrong, everyone's deposits would be protected. So that side of things has calmed down a little since the start of the week. Yes, that does seem to have calmed down, although the share price continues to fall, which may, I suppose, be just as connected to the other issue that is still overhanging at Metro, which is a capital raising, which they've been working on for several months now, which follows the discovery in January that they had been mismarking some of the risks on their lending book, resulting in a need for more capital. Where are we at on that? Because it has been some time in the preparation, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And while, as I just said, Metrobank might not be close to collapsing, but it does have some serious issues that it has to fix. It's trying to raise $350 to shore up those capital levels after that mistake. And they've been working on it since February. And it's sort of hanging over the share price because given that at some point in the near future, and until recently we didn't know when it would be other than vaguely in the second quarter, we knew that there's going to be a lot of new shares coming through why would you buy beforehand when you're about to see your holding diluted? It just didn't make any sense. Now, the message that's been coming through in the last couple of days is that it's in the very final stages of completing that. So from the bank's point of view, hopefully they'll be able to put some of those immediate fears to bed and try and move forward to some sort of recovery. 
Well, I spoke earlier to John Cronin, who's an analyst at Goodbody, on a rather ropey mobile phone link, but we did manage to ask him what he thought about the latest problems at Metro and what the longer-term ramifications might be. John, thanks ever so much for joining us. Do you think this is a significant problem for Metro? Will the noise over the last few days, does it make the fundraising that it has to do, this £350 million equity raising, more difficult? Look, I think at the outset, it doesn't help things, but I do want to emphasise that fundamentally, my view is that the deposits and the brands have value. So I do think there will be a solution here. That's very important for customers to hear. And I think, look, there are a number of things that could be happening here and a number of ways in which this could play out. But firstly, I think on the announcement yesterday, Metro has noted its intention to go down the route of a placing in which I suspect they are thinking about bringing in a substantial amount of fresh equity from new investors. However, we haven't had any firm news on that yet, which suggests to me that price and funding considerations are likely to be continuing discussion points in that vein. To the extent a funding gap has emerged, I would also see Metro push to expedite potential asset sales. And given that Metro doesn't have any asset quality problems as we see it, I think there would be ample interest among potential buyers for any assets that did elect to securitize or sell. Now, that can take some time, but I think it should be reassuring to investors and stakeholders more broadly to know that that is an option. Thirdly, we do understand that the rights issue has been fully underwritten. So it would seem that the best course of action in the event that Metro is not in a position to announce a placing and or indeed execute asset sales ASAP is what seems to me at least to be highly irresponsible for the board not to go ahead with the rights issue, assuming that it's still achievable based on the terms of the underwriting agreements, which we haven't in sight of, of course. That's a key thing, isn't it, John? The language of this does seem to have changed. They talked initially about an equity raising in broad terms, which everyone assumed would be a rights issue, giving current shareholders the chance to buy shares. And it now looks like they're going for a placing, which is much more cumbersome because they have to go to shareholders for approval, presumably because they've had indications from their large investors that they wouldn't subscribe to a rights issue. Correct. I think that would be one of the reasons why they would elect to go with the placing. I mean, another reason would be to potentially expedite the process in the context of new investors who are not already on board providing indications of interest to the effect that they would participate in a placing. That could also be a key reason underpinning their preference now to go with a placing and presumably open offer rather than a fully underwritten rights issue. However, look, I do understand that management has been communicating to investors that the rights issue is indeed, or was indeed, fully underwritten. So it would seem to me that the placing might provide a better outcome from a valuation perspective, which would clearly be preferred by the board. Now, you know, unless they can hurry up and get it done, I think it would be irresponsible not to go back to the original plan and execute the rights issue to the extent that it's still achievable. Because there are dangers here. You know, we have seen some irrational behaviour on the part of wider stakeholders lately. And to the extent that that did present any concerns from a funding perspective in the short term, that could drive management into the arms of a third-party buyer, which wouldn't be a desirable outcome from the board's perspective, presumably. 
No, absolutely. In the absence of that scenario, what do you see as the kind of outlook now in the medium term for Metro? Because obviously it had been on a pretty aggressive growth trajectory. Now, as you say, and as Nick wrote the other day, they're looking at asset sales. This is all about shrinkage or certainly slowing down the growth path. Does that change the equity story? I think it does in the short term. Look, I think capital is certainly the priority over profitability at the moment, and I think that's sensible. I think to the extent that they can drive some capital accretion through asset sales, I think that will be constructive, even though Metro will forego a lot of net income on the back of any such sales. More fundamentally, the point we've kept coming back to over the last two years, fundamentally, I believe that Metro ultimately lacks the scale to compete head-on with the mainstream banks in mainstream mortgage lending markets. It doesn't have the right operating cost base to support its return on equity ambitions. And I think its funding costs, while they're pretty keen, are certainly above those of some of the larger top peers. Fundamentally, I think we need to see another shift in the strategy. I think we need to see a reorientation away from mainstream mortgage lending once things have stabilised and over time into potentially more bespoke and niche areas of the specialist lending markets which would denote higher yielding opportunities for the bank and an ability to make a margin that stacks up in the context of its return on equity ambitions. However, my sense is that the board and indeed the executive management team would have a different view on that. And I think investors have to ask themselves who is the right team to run this business going forward with that in mind. That is indeed a big open question. Well, thank you, John, very much for joining us. Let's move on now to our second topic of the day and a look at the Asian fintech sector where it seems that some of the core business of both HSBC and Standard Chartered, which are obviously big players in that region, they may be coming under new challenge from some fintechs that have been given a regulatory break, really, Stephen. Yes, that's right. Hong Kong has granted Tencent and Alibaba, among other tech companies, digital banking licenses, allowing them to offer personal banking services in the city-state. And now this is a big deal because banks have been worried for years that tech companies who don't face the same type of capital and other behavioural regulations and have far deeper pockets, they're much more profitable and have a younger, more nimble workforce, they're worried that they're trying to muscle in on their turf. And it looks like Hong Kong is giving them the green light for these big companies who already process a lot of payments for customers to come in and start offering actual banking services, such as personal loans and bank accounts. Now, whilst this is currently only in Hong Kong and a few other places, lots of bankers in London and New York will be looking on nervously, obviously with an eye on Apple, Google and Amazon, who may want to take a slice of the personal banking market as well. Are there any other signs outside mainland China that the fintech invasion has reached those established banks in the same way? Well, we can tell from sort of our experience here in London, we know traditional banks are losing lots of customers to the likes of Monzo and Revolut, especially when traveling for foreign holidays, because they offer the services of not actually charging additional top-ups on foreign currency transactions. So I can personally say HSBC have lost any of my business outside of the UK because I'm fed up of paying 2.5% on every non-pound transaction. But in terms of the scale and offering large bank accounts, the established players still utterly dominate the market for things such as mortgages, current accounts and payments at the moment. So this is really more of a fear over the next five to ten years than the next one to two. But what seems key here is that Hong Kong regulators have allowed the upstarts to have a kind of regulation light 
version of the rules applied to them which gives them easier access than might be the case for a traditional well, of bank. Of course, I mean, bank CEOs have been arguing that the playing field is not level for a long time. They've accused regulators of being asleep at the wheel because, of course, banks have quite rigorous capital requirements these days. They have to hold big loss-absorbing buffers in case they run into problems like they did a decade ago in the financial crisis. And tech companies, of course, aren't formally listed as banks and therefore at a group level don't have to hold the same type of capital structure, which, of course, affects profitability and your ability to invest in new developments and acquire new customers on thinner margins. Very good. Let's move on to our final topic and a look at Greensill, a British private finance shadow bank the kind of institution that maybe isn't in the mainstream of financial services, certainly not a household name, but a stake of it, we think up to maybe 20% of it, has been acquired by the enormous Japanese investment firm SoftBank. Rob, what do you think has drawn them to this business and what exactly is going on here? Yeah, it's a good question. I should say that Greensill actually drew a very big investment from General Atlantic last year, which is a big US investor known for investing in European fintechs. Adyen, the payments company, is probably their most famous bet. So it already drawn a lot of interest, but that crystallized the valuation at around $1.6 billion. So SoftBank have poured $800 million into Greensill to take a minority stake. But it's incredible to see the sort of inflationary impact SoftBank's had on their valuation. It's gone up from about $1.6 billion to $3.5 billion. And put simply, I think one of the key appeals to SoftBank is what Greensill does. SoftBank love financial structuring, financial engineering, and they love clever use of off-balance sheet debt. That's basically Greensill's main business. They find clever ways for companies to raise financing out of their supply chains and working capitals, which crucially don't usually count towards their debt levels. You can sort of see why that'd be up SoftBank's alley. Yeah, absolutely. Are there comparable investments that it's made? Well, I mean, it's starting to make financial investments, right? We've seen it with Oak North in the UK. To an extent, we've seen it with Wirecard in Germany, although there's an interesting structure around that. It's something they're starting to do. Is there a coherent strategy that we can detect amongst the few investments they've made? It's probably a bit too early to say. There's not necessarily any grand plan to kind of merge these businesses and create some great financing behemoth, but it's opportunistic spotting these types yeah. of complex financial structures. Yeah, indeed. And Greensill, it's been involved in some complicated situations. I should say Greensill was founded by a guy called Greensill, Lex Greensill. He's this Australian guy. He's very charming. He's the son of a farming family, and he's got this great story about how his dad's business nearly went under because of late supplier payments and how he's doing all this stuff to try and fix that issue. But he was involved in a pretty hairy situation last year to do with the asset manager GAM, where GAM had to liquidate a fund due to them being not able to sell a bunch of bonds that Greensill had structured. And should say that that situation is still not resolved. So obviously, that was no block on SoftBank investing, but he's been involved in some interesting situations does illustrate that they're at the edge of the financial world, I suppose. Thank you, Rob, for the explanation. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Nick, Stephen and Rob and our guest, John Cronin from GoodBuddy. Thank you for listening. Do take a look at our latest subscription offer if you're not already an FT subscriber. That's at ft.com slash offer. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>